You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who is your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? And that was an excerpt from Writings on Disobedience and Democracy by Vinnie Paz. Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. If you want to send me a message, you can just go over to the website youcan'tbeneutral.com, find a link there to send me a message, find all the back episodes, and you'll also find a link there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. Defending Abundance Everywhere, a call to every community from the Willani Forest. This piece is published at crimethink.com. CrimeThink is spelled C-R-I-M-E-T-H-I-N-C. In the following text, participants in the movement to defend Wilani Forest in Atlanta, Georgia, describe some of the values that animate this struggle. This is a collection of short essays reflecting on the abundance that exists in our communities and in the more-than-human world, and how we not only can practice gratitude for this abundance, but embody it as a way of approaching the world. We dedicate this work to our friend, Tortuguita, who was part of these conversations. Georgia State Troopers killed Tortuguita on January 18, 2023, at the forest they loved so dearly. This piece is for them, and for all past, present, and future warriors, defending and loving the sacred web of abundance everywhere. With profound love and admiration, the Wilani Web Collective, Abundia, Jesse, Jordan, and Mara. Introduction The threads of our lives have been slowly woven together through meals cooked communally, organizing meetings, bonfires and late conversations, foraging, harvesting, taking care of each other, and lately, mourning a fallen comrade and friend. We all came together to protect Wilani Forest, the trees, waters, people, and all beings of this land. We came together to stop Cop City and the violent military occupation of police in our communities, especially the black and brown ones in Atlanta, Georgia. We came together amid COVID when we felt the loss of closeness with our people, knowing we had to find creative ways of fostering community. We have come together to build the world we want to live in, even as we recognize we are all swimming in the extractive and oppressive systems of colonization, white supremacy, and capitalism, programmed for convenience and quick rewards. We keep coming back together, gathering with each other, to live in the joy and rest and wellness of community care. The topic of this piece is the sacred web of abundance, SWOA. The larger sacred web of abundance is the sum of the vast, intricate systems that sustains all life on this planet. Your sacred web of abundance 
is the place that you live, the ways in which it sustains you, and the ways in which you sustain it. We are here to be part of this web and invite in others who are on the same land. What we have found is that the sacred web of abundance, with her billions of years of wisdom, is there for us, waiting for our gratitude, delight, offerings, rituals, and ceremonies, waiting to build a relationship with us. These unique ways of considering abundance emanate from a particular place, the South River Forest, known as the Wilani Forest on old maps of Georgia. These ideas come from conversations among a group of people as they adapt to living in that place. Often overlooked, we feel that the sacred web of abundance is a powerful idea for radical organizing. It is here for us as a force for liberation, as it has existed since time immemorial, and to help us fix the mess we are in by reclaiming our community power and centering it around the land that the community inhabits. In these times, we are called to create new forms of organizing and direct action, new language, perspectives, and modes of being, and infrastructure for healing, care, and safety that centers the SWOA as key praxis for autonomous communities to build on. Abundance points to the interconnected reliance on both self and community to provide for all. Therefore, recreating and reconnecting to our sacred web of abundance are both essential collective actions for a new political project aimed at freedom and autonomy. Abundance is here already, alive around us, if we open ourselves to its presence. We do not take this reliance on abundance for granted, as we did with the gift of human contact and proximity pre-COVID. Instead, we want to nourish and be nourished in its care, find inspiration from it to build new mutual aid infrastructure, gather strength to defend it from extractivism and capitalism everywhere, and create new cultures and ways of being and relating to each other and all the members of the SWOA. The Sacred Web of Abundance the Muskoki's main religious ceremony is Pavsketkov, green corn, a millennial-old multi-ritual revolving around the harvest of new corn at the height of summer. Pavsketkov aims at the renewal and balancing of relationships between humans, land, animals, spaces that humans inhabit, and spirit. In conversations with Muskoki language scholars, I was told that to them, the concept of abundance as a single word does not exist. Reverend Rosemary McCombs Maxley, a Muscogee Creek citizen of Oklahoma and Muscogee language educator, shared in her class the phrase, Enhoiv vikeik solkitos, which translates as, webs that are precious are many. This resonates deeply with us in our experience of the sacred web of abundance. We understand the sacred web of abundance as a living entity with intricate and ever-changing processes and systems. These webs have been woven collectively and continuously for more than 4.5 billion years by all that are part of it, from flora and fauna to fungi, elements, and humans. In the case of the Atlanta SWOA, the weaving of human species was done first by the Muskoki people. 
The sacred web of abundance is always in flux, renewing and healing itself through what we call regional ecosystems or microclimates. And it's always nurturing the species connected to it through a series of processes that contain limitless knowledge. From the SWOA, we can take all of our cues to reimagine the future and make everything anew in each community and even the world. We can reflect or mimic the SWOA when creating new mutual aid infrastructure, culture, accessibility, meaning, and much more. But first, we must reconnect with it, both personally and collectively, in a deeper way. Each sacred web of abundance is unique and distinct, yet interconnected. We feel that SWOA is not an abstract concept like nature, environment, ecosystem, but rather a concrete one. You can learn about its history and the particular ways the land you are on likes to be cared for, celebrated, and loved. You can touch, feel, see, get closer to, interact with, learn from, feed and sustain yourself in your community by, and build meaning and life around a particular SWOA. Furthermore, the concept of the SWOA is easy to relate to, given that we are all already in a relationship with it to some degree. Every human in every culture has a personal experience of abundance as a physical phenomenon, as well as of the SWOA as a network in nature. Yet people are often not entirely aware of it. Under capitalism, we exist in a permanent mode of scarcity and extraction, whether we are conscious of it or not. This mode is interrupted and challenged when collectively we start weaving back into the SWOA. In our early history, the human experience was centered around the sacred web of abundance. We built everything from our relationship with it, including meaning, ritual, ceremony, agriculture, art, economies, sustenance, and culture. In more recent history, we have been slowly but surely estranged from the SWOA as we've developed culture around hierarchical power structures, normalizing extractivist systems and accumulation. Until the end of the last century, especially prior to the Industrial Revolution, many people were still foraging, growing, processing, celebrating, and sharing food collectively while still worshipping their particular SWOA. There are still people doing this today, but they are in the minority now, frequently self-segregated or pushed to live in isolation under attack from a global market economy. Regardless of how radical our political ideas might be, most people's relationship with their sacred web of abundance is strained or truncated by the permanent mediation of capitalism and its narrowness. Capitalism controls our daily experience of the SWOA because people have to prioritize survival and because we've been conditioned to live with convenience and instant gratification. That's why we don't know or have forgotten how to accept the gifts of our particular SWOA. That's why we are likely to step on an acorn or walk past the seasonal gifts of abundance on our way to work or to buy food at the grocery store, always distracted by the transactional. That's why in radical activist circles, we don't prioritize foraging, growing, processing, distributing, sharing, or celebrating foods which have been the main collective means of connecting and autonomous organizing throughout history. Today there is not just a misinformation crisis, but also a crisis of motivation, especially among young people. 
there is a lack of concrete ideologies that one can identify closely with, directly benefit from, experience, and be empowered to act on. We see this with the climate emergency and other pressing issues. In the face of the greatest crisis in modern history, organizers often recycle strategies for organizing that either no longer work or do not appear relevant to enough people to make use of the human energy that the climate emergency deserves, rendering this organizing performative rather than constructive. Sadly, even with the climate crisis at the forefront, the consistent trend within all of our organizing is the absence of consideration or even awareness of the sacred web of abundance as a political idea, radical praxis, way of being, an urgent priority to attend to, that is, an entity to defend. Furthermore, most settler-imposed economic, political, spiritual, religious, and philosophical systems – communism, capitalism, socialism, etc. – have ignored the sacred web of abundance as a critical collective experience and radical idea. Anarchism, too, has largely ignored it and so sadly passed up the opportunity to effectively challenge and destabilize capitalism and private property. It's uncomfortable for Western systems of thinking to build around the expansiveness of the SWOA. So instead, they focused on the extremely limited experience of humans, and a limited selection of humans at that. Therefore, all of the systems we live under or aspire to live under are weak, without self-actualization or resilience, because they all ignore the most powerful and common experience on this planet for all species, our interconnectivity to the SWOA, and our common histories of weaving and living in abundance. Weaving collectively back to our beloved sacred web of abundance in Atlanta. Since we started to organize against the construction of Cop City in Weelani Forest almost two years ago, we've been having deep conversations about collectively weaving ourselves back into the sacred web of abundance while bringing food and water to visit friends and comrades, before events and after walkthroughs, or during morning coffee at the open kitchen, we become committed to testing out our ideas, not just talking about them. This commitment can be seen in the three Atlanta experiences shared below. Side note, at this point in this piece, I risk alienating and losing 50% or so of the audience. Because this next section is a very interesting and telling piece about pecan foraging or pecan foraging and thus is a dilemma. I've grown up hearing the word pecan much more often than pecan. Pecan foraging morning. This past autumn in 2022, Jordan and I went to Kirkwood, a residential neighborhood in Atlanta, searching for pecans. Jordan knew of a house where the most beautiful pecans could be found outside, and sure enough, we arrived to a blanket of them. They were big and soft, with thin and easy-to-crack shells, full of milky, earthy flavors and strong dirt fragrance. We knocked on the house's door, and when a woman answered, we asked if we could share in her abundance. Go ahead, they're just going to go bad, she said. So we got down on the soil until we had many bags full. After some time, the woman came back out with lemonade and some questions for us. 
The conversation went something like this. Why are you doing that? She inquired. Because we love pecans and we appreciate the gifts of the earth. We want to be connected to this pecan tree and the web of abundance. Oh, that's so true. I've never thought about it like that. She started sharing stories of her family growing up in California, how they would go hiking and she would collect little things. She told us we reminded her of her own childhood practice of foraging and feeling that connection. Are you from here? She asked. Do you do this a lot? Yes, we're part of a new collective, Common Abundance, and we want to make foraging accessible to all people. What do you do with the things that you forage? Well, we process and share and enjoy them. That's the whole point of foraging. We're going to make acorn pancakes next Saturday from our foraging too. We continued picking up the pecans and she began to reflect on the tree and how blessed she is to have this particular tree in front of her home. Though she doesn't provide it with active care, it supplies such gloriously big pecans and is strong and healthy. We thanked her after filling up seven bags. We never take everything, of course, for the pecans left behind will nourish other beings and soils. Who knows who will come around next or where those pecans will land again or whether they sprout into a new tree or die and offer their life back to the earth. As we were about to leave, she said, come forage any time, no need to ask. I'll tell my husband and son that people are welcome to forage here. I want to support this collective. She gave us her contact information and offered her skills in storytelling and tech. Before we left, she added, I recognize this is not my land, even though I bought it a year ago. I am not a steward here. I haven't been taking care of these trees. Indigenous people were stewards here once, and probably black people stewarded this land before me. That's probably why these pecans are so beautiful. These pecans aren't even mine. Come whenever you want. You are welcome. Anytime. We were amazed. Much to our surprise, we didn't have to lecture her, bring her into a documentary viewing night, or make her read marks. We were just living the ethics of abundance, honoring the gifts of the land, and listening to the stories that emerged from the tree and this woman. The physical embodiment of abundance was so attractive to her, so welcoming, that she brought her whole self to it and broke open her own ideas of private property. She got it. Foraging a Connection My friend Jesse and I stand in front of a small crater that cups a mangle of severed roots. We are gathered to mourn and defy. Over the past two days, Wilani People's Park has been illegally bulldozed by a private developer who was tired of not getting his way. In his tantrum, his workers have torn up what was planted with care. At least six serviceberry trees were felled. They are stacked in a sad pile on the southern edge of the park. Have you ever tasted a fresh serviceberry? In her essay dedicated to the fruit, the Serviceberry, an Economy of Abundance. Robin Wall Kimmerer invites us to imagine a fruit that tastes like a blueberry crossed with the satisfying heft of an apple, a touch of rose water, and a minuscule crunch of almond-flavored seeds. This understory tree lines parks, streets, forests, and forest edges from the southeast of the so-called United States to the northeast of so-called Canada. I first met and tasted serviceberries through the concrete jungle food map. 
The map lists the public fruit trees in Atlanta, pears, apples, plums, and more. Concrete Jungle uses this map to organize volunteers to gather fresh produce and deliver that food to pantries and shelters throughout the city. But for these volunteers and other map users, myself included, it presents an exciting new geography of abundance. A portal opens into a world where every lawn, side street, forest, and forest edge becomes a possible source of food, new and wild flavors, and opportunities for learning, curiosity, sharing, and connection. After many seasons of picking spring berries with friends, shaking apples and persimmons onto tarps in the fall and early winter, and expanding from fruits and nuts to wild greens, roots, and fungi, I formed my own mental map of the abundant gifts hiding in plain sight. I'm not much of a visual artist, but even if I were, I'm not sure that I could paint this map for you. It is magical and dynamic. It re-renders as the seasons shift. It reroutes me towards the pecan tree with the fattest nuts on my bike ride home. It surfaces map pins and memories that dance larger as I approach. There is a temptation to translate this newfound abundance into a dollar amount, especially given farmer's market novelties like pecans at $5 a pound or chanterelles at 15 but when we come into something like acorn flour, which can be purchased at an Asian supermarket for a few dollars, the market economy comes out far ahead. Once you account for the hours gathering, drying, shelling, leaching, dehydrating, grinding, and storing, you're looking at an hourly equivalent earning far below any minimum wage. This is where the concept of the sacred web of abundance becomes a useful tool. A monetary calculation doesn't account for the refreshing richness of time spent outside under trees. With the scent of the earth and the soothingly repetitive task of sorting through eligible nuts. This one has a crack in it. This one a weevil hole. This one is too small to be worth the effort. It doesn't account for the time spent with friends that makes the task more enriching. It doesn't factor in the satisfaction of gathering to feast on acorn pancakes covered with blackberry jam. It does not account for the increased connection and feeling of responsibility toward our kin. The average supermarket, if you can afford it, is abundant, true, but at its core, it is extractive. It is not woven into the sacred web of abundance. Commodities, items broken down into individual, indistinguishable units, are, by definition, disconnected. The cost of this disconnection is immeasurable. It is at the center of our culture of death and suffering. Weaving an appreciation for abundance is a task of culture and relationship building. This is the goal of our new collective, Common Abundance. Through the sharing of tools and knowledge around foraging, specifically nuts and other nutrient-dense, high-calorie foods, we hope to make it easier and more accessible to connect to the web. Together we can increase regional food autonomy by lowering barriers to harvesting uncultivated foods. As the taste for foraging grows, so must the amount of forageable land. This appetite can be fed through acts of ecosystem reciprocity, repair, and land defense. This past autumn in 2022, Common Abundance gathered in a park for an acorn skill share. We were able to demonstrate the many steps it takes to turn acorns into food for humans. 
Fear melted away as we collaborated on this multi-step process and enthusiasm took its place. The participants were able to taste acorn pancakes fresh off the griddle, topped with jams and jellies also made with local forageables. Our nutcrackers were present for display and use, from Grandpa's goody-getter for cracking the rock-hard shells of the black walnut, to the kinetic pecan cracker, an electric tool for speeding up the shelling of pecans. It is our goal to one day have a facility where community members can bring their forage bounty to process with ease. The steps we've made in this direction give me hope. While we mourn the loss of our serviceberry friends at the hands of a cruel, disconnected private developer, I have no doubt that they will be replanted. Too many people have tasted their berries and embarked upon a loving, reciprocal relationship with both the fruit and the tree. So today, back at Wilani People's Park, we follow the example of the spider, who doesn't throw up eight limbs and swear off weaving when some deer or human unwittingly plows through its web. We set about cleaning up the park and preparing for that evening's potluck in the ruins. Lights glow above the folding tables. We share stories, songs, and reassurances. We feel full and connected. We eat. Planting the Seeds of Abundance Dandelion Fest Some of the seeds of the sacred web of abundance were planted during the Dandelion Fest, the moneyless market and festival put on annually by Mariposa's rebels. There are few public places in the United States, especially queer ones, where spending money is not socially expected or even compulsory. We are always encouraged to be consumers, buying things we don't need and seeking to meet our individual needs instead of collective ones. The Dandelion Fest aimed to show people what it felt like to be in a queer space where there wasn't an expectation to spend money and where money wasn't a barrier to accessing community. The festival was not permanent, but ephemeral, an experimental experience of a horizontal society full of things that we could gift each other or trade with each other, one without scarcity. But what if we already lived in such a society? Capitalism has brainwashed us into believing the myth of scarcity. But we already live in abundance. The Dandelion Fest demonstrated this. Dozens of people came together to share food, medicine, plants, and clothes, plus their talents on the open mic. It felt like many other queer outdoor markets in Atlanta, except you didn't leave spending $50. Soon, people were asking us when we were going to put on the next festival. It had become a staple of Atlanta's DIY scene. Dandelion Fest challenged our dominant consumerist culture, which has infiltrated even the most leftist spaces. It asked the question, if we could pull something like this off, can we do it at a larger scale? Why aren't we already living like this? Obviously, there are many practical answers to this question. Living in a capitalist society, not having the infrastructure for robust mutual aid networks, and most of our modern education systems prioritizing the remembrance of facts over knowledge that would be relevant to our survival. We're not saying we're creating that infrastructure by throwing a free festival, but by doing this, we hope to, even in small pockets, start shifting attitudes and culture around spending money and showing up for each other. 
We also can't say that we conceived of the philosophy of horizontal trade ourselves, which was the intention that the festival was centered around. We have been heavily inspired by the project El Cambalache, a mutual aid project and free store run by a group of primarily indigenous women in Chiapas, Mexico. The philosophy of Cambalache, meaning literally to swap in Spanish, aims to remove the hierarchy of transactional value, allowing people to give what they don't need and ask for what they do. This theory asks to unpack why certain things in our society have more value than others. Cambalache also forces people to be in relationship to each other, which buying and gifting doesn't always necessitate. Cambalache also does not subscribe to the notion of charity, being that charity requires a hierarchy in which a person with resources or money gives to someone who lacks these things. Charity is diametrically opposed to horizontal exchange. After the Dandelion Fest, we were left with feelings of wanting something more permanent. We saw how much could happen when people came together, even for a single afternoon, and brought with them the abundance that existed in their communities. But why couldn't people help each other meet their needs on a daily basis? We knew we weren't going to abolish capitalism overnight, so we settled for a Facebook page and a group chat. Our wish was that the seeds we planted during the festival would grow into a web of community resources, mutual aid, and abundance. These virtual spaces would be a resource people could visit before or instead of going to the store and spending money on something new. So far, the Cambalache chat has been beautiful to see, a place where people ask for care for their dogs, help building chicken coops, or a hand fixing their cars. A place where people give away everything from shoes that no longer fit them to medicine and makeup. It's a small chat, but we're already seeing people getting their needs met. We hope that by encouraging people to interrogate and reorient their relationship to consuming and buying, that not only will we save people a few bucks, but also foster a sense of community. Hopefully, they will start talking to their neighbors when they run out of eggs instead of going to the Kroger self-checkout. Radical Stewardship In our view, the concept of radical stewardship stems from the recognition of the millennia of knowledge and work of the indigenous people of any given land, the land's first stewards. Radical stewardship is in alignment with the rights and interests of the first stewards of the land, whether they choose to demand the land back, move to rematriate it, or exercise their right to keep taking care of it. In our case here in Atlanta, these first stewards are the Muscogee people. Radical stewardship's tenets are starting to reemerge due to our collective desire to reconnect with our beloved sacred web of abundance. Right now, our work is to ask Muscogee people and indigenous people everywhere to help us give solid meaning to how radical stewardship works today. Should they be open to sharing with us what radical stewardship means to them what practices are more beneficial to the land, we can continue to ground our lives spiritually and organizing in this way of being. Still, some of the key tenets are intuitive, like radical stewardship's collective and dynamic nature, which is necessary for adapting to the challenges of the climate crisis. Radical stewardship is fundamentally a spiritual way of being. When we allow ourselves to fall deeper into the sacred web of abundance around us, 
we see how each moment of connection with the earth is a ceremony. We harvest pecans and sing the glory of the pecan tree. We bury the dead bird on the side of the road and mourn a life taken too soon. We speak with the chanterelles growing along the river and ask how we might be nourished by their bodies. We see the cycles of life and death happen again and again around us in seasons and know that we too must live now and will someday die, our body weaving itself back to SWOA. But while we breathe into this world, each connection weaves us tighter into the interconnected world, into abundance. In his essay, All Land Back, All States Smashed, Free the Earth by Any Means Necessary, Dan Fisher does the important work of reaching out and asking Native American people what the slogan Land Back means to them. This is what Madeline Rose Wesaw, a Pokagon band Potawatomi, an American Indian movement organizer, had to say. I think in general, what most indigenous people understand land back to mean is returning stewardship of the land to indigenous hands because we believe it's our purpose and we know how to take care of this land. We all agree on returning stewardship and responsibility of this land into indigenous hands and then also providing us the resources we need to do our jobs since so much has been taken from our communities. As we're just starting to develop the concept of radical stewardship, and as we shape this idea into our main tool for personal and collective reconnection to the sacred web of abundance, we must continue the paramount work of reaching out and being in constant conversation with Native American and Indigenous people everywhere. By doing this, we ensure that radical stewardship at any particular SWOA in the world is informed by the millennia of knowledge and work of the first stewards of the land. Weaving collectively back to the sacred web of abundance everywhere. We are just beginning our collective weaving back to our beloved sacred web of abundance through rituals and ceremonies of praise, reconnection, celebration, learning, and enjoyment, along with the work of creating mutual aid infrastructure that replicates, protects, and enhances our natural SWOA, as well as our organizing rooted in radical stewardship. We feel these ideas acting as spores, landing in ready substrates, feasting on the ways of being that are dead and no longer serve. We feel our interweaving connecting us deeper to the sounds of cicadas while our bodies reflect the light of the summer sun. Today the call to reconnect with our sacred web of abundance is stronger and more urgent than ever, given the threats of extractivism, ongoing colonialism and capitalism and the climate crisis that endangers every SWOA on this planet. Wherever you are, we invite you to join us in weaving back to the SWOA together, celebrating her gifts while learning from and recognizing the work, acknowledge and write to the steward the land from the first stewards of the SWOA, indigenous people everywhere, and the Muskoki people in Georgia and Atlanta. With this work, our collective SWOA is happy, keeps thriving and providing, it enables us to thrive too in these times that are at once challenging and full of possibilities. It is our hope that communities will take any or all of these four ideas, abundance, the sacred web of abundance, weaving back into that web, and radical stewardship, and expand, adapt, and shape them to their particular reality and autonomous work. May our weaving back into our beloved SWOA teach us to appreciate the next 
and sing loud the abundance of corn harvest like the cicadas in the height of new harvest time and bear good fruit in us all and in all of our communities. This piece is called Strength Through Sharing, the Growing Value of Free Exchanges. It's written by Marina Schaufler and is published at themainmonitor.org. Battery-powered mowers and hedge trimmers at the new South Portland Electric Tool Library, or SPEDL, are checked out almost as soon as they're returned. Demand is high among local residents for fume-free and relatively quiet yard equipment that lowers carbon emissions. The SPEDL grew out of One Climate Future, a planning document jointly prepared by the cities of South Portland and Portland to foster climate resilience and cut carbon pollution. One way to realize these goals is by sharing resources, tools, and services, eliminating, in the plan's words, the precedent that every individual or household must own their own items. Using the public library model, the SPEDAL offers free access to yard appliances that are literally checked out using library cards. A $16,000 solid waste diversion grant from the Maine Department of Environmental Protection funded the SPEDAL, which is among Maine's first equipment libraries. Others include a membership-based tool lending library run by a Portland nonprofit and a shared-use program for farm equipment administered by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. The SPEDAL has already sparked inquiries from several communities interested in replicating its electric tool sharing model. Maine has a distinctive culture of thrift and reuse, with varied means of resource sharing, observed Brianne Berry, an environmental studies professor at Ursinus College in Pennsylvania, who spent years researching that culture, doing doctoral work at the University of Maine. Small investments made in fostering a reuse economy can provide great dividends, she noted, helping people access what they can't afford and fostering what researchers call social capital, a network of relationships that studies have demonstrated strengthens community resilience when disasters hit. As we face more ongoing disruption, she said, these ties with neighbors are increasingly important. Whether due to its rural nature or to Yankee thrift, Maine has a strong reuse economy relative to its size and population, and relative to other states, Barry observed. Thinking about materials as resources is enshrined in policy, she added, from Maine's enactment of a bottle bill in 1978, to its more recent leadership in Extended Producer Responsibility, EPR, legislation. With more state support, local communities could strengthen the informal networks of sharing that lend us collective strength. We could model our communities after the forested landscape we live in, which relies on complex subterranean exchanges. Trees depend on mycelial fungal networks in the soil to share information about threats and to support one another. While trees have evolved these sophisticated exchanges over eons, we need to organize stronger human networks post-haste. Given climate upheaval, economic disruptions, pandemics, and dwindling resources, more shocks lie ahead. Maine already faced widespread food insecurity when COVID-19 pandemic struck in 2020, 
creating havoc in markets and supply chains, and worsening the plight of families in need. One regional response, a hunger relief effort called Waldo County Bounty, managed to tap almost instantaneously into the productivity of Maine's strong gardening culture. The group decided to establish give-and-take tables, where those with abundant gardens could freely share surplus produce. Vina Lindley, a food systems professional at the University of Maine Cooperative Extension, UMCE, recalled how the program took off with almost no publicity. She set up a table outside the UMCE office with a large sign and went inside to grab flyers. By the time she returned, there were already donated cabbages sitting on the table. Produce comes and goes so quickly that few sites require coolers except in the hottest weather. The tables or share stands, more farm stand-like structures now number 16 county-wide, invisible locations with easy parking, and often round-the-clock access. They're community-led, community-driven, and are kept Maine-style, pretty low-tech, Lindley added. So program costs are low. Needed materials were largely donated from the lumber to the signs painted by art program volunteers. This year, spring seedlings were offered at stands and tables, and seeds were given to gardeners willing to supply produce throughout the growing season. Give-and-take stands are an easy model to replicate, Lindley said, among many of the food-sharing initiatives now operating around Maine, including UMCE's Harvest for Hunger program and a growing number of community fridges. In her words, growing your own is absolutely a way to be more resilient in the face of all sorts of challenges. Maine has a reputation for being the attic of New England, with a plethora of thrift stores, yard sales, and flea markets. But another source of recycled goods is often overlooked. Furniture banks that operate like thrift stores without monetary exchanges, providing free access to furniture, kitchen wares, and small appliances. They're a vital resource for people forced to start life over, such as those leaving shelters or prisons, victims of fire or domestic violence and immigrants. The first two furniture banks in Maine formed more than a decade ago, and a half dozen or so operate now. Nearly all of them are volunteer-run, according to Christopher Olson, a real estate agent and the founder of Welcome to Housing in Old Town. It takes little to establish a furniture bank, Olson added, just a space an owner can make money off of and can write off. He plans to reach out to regional associations of real estate agents around Maine, hoping to spark formation of new banks in settings like Scohegan and Belfast that are far from existing furniture banks. Given the potential for more storms, fires, and disruptions in the future, furniture banks should multiply before needs intensify. Olson believes, quote, when there is a disaster, it would be nice to have a resource to turn to. If furniture banks within Maine were better networked, they could share and redirect resources around the state in response to disasters. A shared inventory system could also help ensure that no donations go to waste. When, for example, trucking companies volunteer to bring to Maine furnishings from hotels undergoing upgrades elsewhere in New England. Olson envisions Maine ultimately having a network of furniture banks operating so smoothly that we can share that knowledge with other states. Maine could indeed take the lead in demonstrating the benefits of a sharing economy for household security, climate resilience, and waste reduction. It is a step that would take minimal capital investments 
and could create a powerful reservoir of goodwill. People who receive help through these programs are often committed to pay it forward. Many volunteers at Welcome to Housing, for example, are people who received help from the Furniture Bank in the past. State grants could support local sharing initiatives, but Barry noted that Maine also needs a navigator position to help volunteer groups apply for state grants. It's important to recognize that traditional economic measures don't begin to capture the far-reaching benefits of a sharing economy, Barry observed. These exchanges cut waste and carbon pollution, build trust, kindle community, and foster resilience. In a world of intensifying disruptions, those values will be of immeasurable worth. And that will just about wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. You can follow on X, formerly known as Twitter, at YCBNeutral. Once again, you can check out all the back episodes at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. You can listen to this and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at MovingTrainRadio.com. Here's a piece from Jesse Jett. This is called An Abundance of Scarcity. It is from the album The Coming of Spring, Perennial Edition. Thanks for listening. It starts with a few things missing at the store. A few things missing that you're likely to ignore. That didn't impact this trip or the one before, but it might impact the next four. Or every time you try to find provisions between now and the forevermore. Between now and the day when all your neighbors form a horde and show up with their forks and torches trying to force your pantry door. And you could give them double what you really can afford, but they'll all be back for more. Because your meager little crop is not enough to stop a war. Not enough to stop a conflict. Not enough to stop our greed and primal needs from just erupting into one communal mosh pit. Because Uncle Sam will starve you just the sight of fucking Auschwitz if it pleases Congress. If it pleases all the hawks so they can gas up all their bombers then devastate some other poor families far away and overseas because we illegally obtained their DNA and linked them to Osama. And when they send police to burn your gardens and your trees and they tell you you can't feed yourself, you just might get a visit from Obama. He can put his arm around you, maybe offer you a drink of ice-cold flint water. And he'll tell a little story about a hard-working immigrant who's here to live the dream and make a future for his daughter, who works the high-fructose corn syrup vats at the factories that forge our fodder. And he'll tell you what a slap in his face it would be to refuse the fruits of all his labor just so you could live a little longer. He'll tell you how the spirit of America is carried by the people who would brave a little danger just to make the whole collective stronger. And he'll make it sound so sweet that you'll completely understand why he's the ruling class's fixer when they need a revolution conquered. So buy some stock in water. Take a good long look at your local farmer's market. Soon those skies will darken. Soon the crops will gray and only ash will be the harvest. They'll take EBT away from those it hits the hardest. And regardless of your talents, you'll be starving artists. Locusts lounge about the empty carts and gather in the thicket. Anywhere the dust is thickest, all the signs have blown away, and anyway, there's nothing left to pick it. We unanimously voted to approve every one of Joe's decisions because we were far too weak to speak a whisper of resistance, and some were too blinded by their bright orange nightmare to look into the distance 
Or to look into the past and see that Joe's plan to feed us all means eating all your meals in prison. That's the truth of profit over plenty in a capitalist system. If the harvest ends up in your hands or rotting in the trash, only profit makes the difference. Only money will decide if they neglect your children. Because hunger kills, so corporations found a way to see that hunger makes a killing. And the truth is hard to swallow, but it's plenty filling. <laughs>